The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On November 18, 1986, 39-year-old Hella Crafts was dropped off at her house in Newtown, Connecticut by her co-workers. She was exhausted after fulfilling her flight attendant duties on a long haul from Frankfurt to New York. Hella was happy to have made it home before an impending storm and was looking forward to tucking in her three children. As Hella's co-workers watched their friend enter her home, they didn't realize it would be the last time they would see her again. Join me now as we take a look into the disappearance of Hella Crafts, a loving mother and successful career woman who had grown suspicious that her life was in danger. You'll hear how the ramifications of this case would eventually change forensic science and would help to make victims of domestic abuse a little bit safer. Helen Nielsen was born in Denmark in 1947 and was an only child. Growing up, Hella always had an abundance of friends and looked forward to going to school every day. She was a very vibrant and outgoing child. In part because of her love of learning, Hella quickly caught on to other languages, and by the time she was a teenager, she'd mastered French and English on top of her native Danish. She'd also managed to learn some conversational German, Norwegian, and Swedish. Hella attended college in England, and later worked as an au pair in France, putting her linguistic skills to good use. She was a beautiful young woman with pale blue eyes, high cheekbones, long blonde hair, with a warm, engaging smile. While living in France, Hella's gift for languages, her friendliness, and stunning good looks helped her land a job as a flight attendant for Capital Airways. Being able to see the world and learn about different cultures was an opportunity she embraced and frequently had stops in Brussels and Frankfurt. She even worked on a route that had her traveling to Africa many times. While Hella learned that Pan American World Airways was hiring flight attendants to work out of Copenhagen, Denmark, her home country, she jumped at the chance and applied for the job. The position could offer her the best of both worlds. Time at home and time spent seeing the world. It was no surprise to those who knew Hella that she was one of the eight candidates chosen out of the 200 who applied. After being hired, 
Hella traveled to Miami to begin an in-depth training course with Pan Am. Given her dedication and prior experience as a flight attendant, Hella easily finished at the top of her class. While in Miami for training, Hella was lodged at a small hotel located near the airport. With its close proximity to the airport, it was a frequent destination of many airline workers. On May 24, 1969, while Hella was killing time at the motel waiting for her next flight, she bumped into a 31-year-old man named Richard Crafts, and there was an instant attraction between them. Little did Hella know that this chance meeting would put her life on a dangerous path. In contrast to Hella's friendly, kind disposition, Richard was aggressive, had a fiery temper, and was an avid gun collector. Richard had spent time in the military and was drawn to aviation. He had learned to fly both helicopters and fixed-wing aircrafts, and by the late 1950s had earned his pilot certifications. In the early 60s, after serving as a marine aviator, Richard was hired by Air America Incorporated, an airline used by the CIA for covert missions. After spending five years completing risky assignments in Southeast Asia, he returned to the United States in 1966. After working on and off for a number of airlines, Richard managed to secure a well-paid position as a full-time pilot for Eastern Airlines. Even with his busy schedule, Richard had an active social life and almost exclusively dated flight attendants. In the spring of 1969, when Hella and Richard met each other in Miami, he was already engaged to another woman. However, his prior commitment did little to damper his relationship with Hella. After having a turbulent on-again-off-again relationship for several years, things suddenly changed when Hella became pregnant. In November of 1975, Hella and Richard got married in New Hampshire and started a new chapter of their lives together. Although Hella and Richard's marriage had the potential to be a happy one, that was far from how it turned out. From the very beginning, Hella's friends and co-workers were suspicious of Richard's secretiveness and cold, distant behavior. In their opinion, it was only a matter of time until the marriage fell apart. By 1986, Hella and Richard had been married for 11 years. They lived in a four-bedroom ranch house at 5 Newfield Lane in rural, affluent Newtown, Connecticut. With their combined income of well over $100,000 a year, money was of little concern. The couple had three children, two boys aged 10 and 6, and a daughter who was four. Even though Hella had eventually returned to work, she loved being a mother. She was actively involved in her children's daily activities, including volunteering with their soccer teams and participating in the Holly School PTA. To assist Hella with juggling her career in motherhood, the family hired Don Marie Thomas, a 19-year-old au pair 
to help with the children. Those who knew Helen during her 11 years of marriage to Richard considered her to be an excellent mother, dedicated flight attendant, and a vibrant and active person who enjoyed the companionship of her friends and family. There was only one real problem in her life, and that was Richard. Unlike Hella, Richard didn't thrive in his parental role. Once the couple's three children were born, he would often vanish for days at a time without letting his wife know where he was going. When Richard did return home, he'd refuse to discuss where he'd been. That left Hella unsure if Richard had been at work, attending a gun show, or off with another woman. Although he was rarely at home, Richard still maintained control over the family's finances. He provided Hella with just enough money to cover the household expenses, while he, on the other hand, spent money frivolously. He not only owned dozens of guns and other assorted weapons, he also bought landscaping equipment, tractors, mowers, and a $25,000 backhoe, which he never used. The machinery was left out to rust in their yard and became a point of contention with some of their neighbors. Richard's need for power and control also compelled him to become an auxiliary police officer in his hometown in 1982. This duty, on top of his full-time commitment with Eastern Airlines, he took the unpaid role seriously, spending countless hours at the police station, occasionally even responding to calls without proper authorization. In 1986, Richard was hired as a part-time police officer in Southbury, about a 10-minute drive from Newtown. The $7 an hour he made in this position was a mere pittance in comparison to his salary as a pilot. But for Richard, the power that came with that job made it well worth his time. He even paid for his own police seminars and bought a 1985 Ford Crown Victoria, the exact same model and type of vehicle the Connecticut State Police used. On his own dime, Richard outfitted it with multiple radios, antennas, police lights, and a siren. His desire for dominance extended to the treatment of his wife. Over the years, Hella had appeared in public numerous times with visible bruises on her face. Eventually, she admitted to friends she had been experiencing serious domestic abuse with Richard physically assaulting her to ensure he maintained power in their relationship. Hella told one of her close friends she would never forgive Richard for what he'd put her through. Richard's need to do whatever he liked also resulted in over a decade of infidelity. Right after they were first married, Richard continued to have affairs with other women. Although Hella was all too aware that Richard was being unfaithful, she tried to turn a blind eye to his indiscretions for as long as she could for the sake of their children. But over time, it became all too much for Hella to bear. She started to talk openly to her friends and mother about getting a divorce. The final straw occurred in 1986, during the tail end of the summer. Hella was looking through a phone bill to make sure that their au pair was not placing unauthorized long-distance phone calls. 
when Richard suddenly walked into the room and tore the bill from her hands. She became instantly suspicious that he was cheating on her once again. It was then that Hella decided to retain an attorney and officially start the divorce process. She booked an appointment and met with Diane Anderson in September of 1986. At first, Anderson thought the case would be routine. Her perspective changed when Helen noted Richard was abusive and could be dangerous. Hella revealed he owned an arsenal of rifles, machine guns, and even had grenade launchers in their basement. Hella bluntly told her lawyer, If something happens to me, please don't assume it was an accident. Anderson suggested Hella hire Keith Mayo, a private investigator. The lawyer thought it would benefit Hella's petition for divorce and request for custody of the children if she had some concrete evidence Richard was cheating on her. Hella requested copies of their family's recent phone bills from the phone company. And on September 4th, she met with Mayo, handing over the bills after circling a New Jersey number she didn't recognize. The number appeared numerous times, over many days on several bills. In short order, Mayo obtained the address associated with the phone number in question. Soon, he had photographs of Richard with his tall, blonde girlfriend, Nancy Dodd, a flight attendant for Eastern Airlines. The private detective had captured evidence of the pair cuddling and kissing after spending the evening together at Dodd's condo in New Jersey. On October 2nd, Mayo met Hella and showed her the evidence of her husband's affair. She knew it was time to act, and with the support of her lawyer and the private investigator, she finally felt prepared to leave Richard and seek custody of their children. She informed her friends it was time to move on and to be free of Richard and his toxic behavior. Hella may have been committed to leaving, but she was not without fear of her husband. She told her friend Rita, a Pan Am flight attendant, if Richard ever found out what I've been up to, he would kill me. When Hella finally told Richard she wanted a divorce, she was shocked. He seemed unfazed by the news. He condescendingly put his hand on her head and said, Anything you want, dear. For a time, things seemed to calm down in the household. But then, on November 14th, Don, the au pair, overheard a heated argument between Hella and Richard. According to Don, when Hella left the couple's bedroom hours later, she was devastated. Richard attempted to comfort her by placing his arms around her, but Hella pulled away and fled from the room. While on layover in Frankfurt, Hella told a fellow flight attendant over dinner about the serious argument she had recently had with Richard. During the conversation, Hella voiced her suspicions that Richard was up to no good. Hella said, I know he's up to something, I just don't know what. On November 18, 1986, an exhausted Hella flew into New York's Kennedy Airport from Frankfurt. She carpooled with two other flight attendants for the last leg of her trip home to Newtown. 
Under the gathering storm clouds, they were carrying in a three-day storm that would dump over five inches of snow on the area. They pulled up in front of the Crafts family home at around 6.30 p.m. Hella noted that lights were on inside of the home and said to her companions, Oh, Richard's home, without seemingly giving it another thought. She then said goodbye to her friends and headed inside the house. Early the next morning, at around 6 a.m., Richard woke up the au pair and told her the storm had knocked out the heat and electricity. He then instructed her to get the children dressed and organized, as they would be heading to his sister's house in Westport. Although his sister Karen lived only 30 minutes away, her house reportedly still had power. Don thought Richard's decision to go to his sister's house was odd because she knew the Crafts house was equipped with a fireplace and kerosene heaters. They even had a generator. There seemed to be no reason for the family to leave. But begrudgingly, she got out of bed and prepared the family for the trip. When the au pair asked where Hella was, Richard told her she'd already headed to his sister's place. However, when they arrived, Hella was nowhere to be seen. Instead of going out to search for Hella, or showing any concern at all for her safety, Richard calmly made pancakes for the children, as if he didn't have a care in the world. After breakfast, Richard drove back to Newtown alone. Even though the power was back on at the family home by 10.30 a.m., he never returned to pick up Don and his children until later that evening. When he did show up, there was no mention of Hella. As the days passed and Hella failed to show up for work or to contact her friends, concern for her well-being spread. Her friends' suspicions all fell squarely on Richard. And Richard's various explanations as to what happened to Hella did little to quell their suspicions. First, he told several of Hella's friends and co-workers she was back to work they knew this couldn't be true. However, as regulations stipulated, flight attendants had to have a certain number of hours of rest between flights before they could be reassigned. Then, Richard said that Hella had traveled to Denmark to be at her sick mother's side. But when friends called Hella's mother to check in, they learned the 81-year-old was in good health and had uncharacteristically not heard a word from her daughter in weeks. Next, Richard suggested Hella was visiting a friend in the Canary Islands, and then that she had abandoned him and the children. No one believed any of Richard's stories. Hella's loved ones suspected Richard was somehow involved in her disappearance. There was just no way she would just walk away from her life. Hella had worked at Pan Am for 17 years and had an exemplary work history. She had not requested emergency leave, and as a result, her absence would have resulted in an automatic dismissal. Even more, Hella was extremely devoted to her three children, so much so 
that she was seeking full custody in her divorce from Richard. Under no circumstances would she have abandoned her children voluntarily. Shortly after Hella vanished, her attorney started to receive calls from Hella's friends. They were positive something terrible had happened to her. Through various conversations, Anderson learned Hella had shared with at least five of her friends the same dire warning she had told her just a short time ago. If anything happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. Anderson and Hella's private investigator, Mayo, reached out to the Newtown police for assistance. However, the police said they were taking Richard at his word that Hella had voluntarily left. It has been suggested Richard's service as a police officer may have colored the local police's view of the situation. Mayo said when he repeatedly contacted authorities requesting they look further into the case, the police appeared to be totally indifferent. They believed Hella was like a stray dog and would come home when she was good and ready. Regardless of what the local police thought, things started to look more and more dire for Hella. Concerned with the lack of progress in the case, eventually, Walter Flanagan, the state's attorney, turned the investigation over to the state police. When they interviewed the Crafts au pair, Don reported seeing a large brownish stain, roughly the size of a large grapefruit, on Richard and Hella's master bedroom carpet shortly after Hella had vanished. Don also mentioned Richard pulling up the carpet and removing it. When questioned by the authorities, Richard explained the stain on the carpet had been caused by kerosene from a portable heater. Richard said he'd removed all the carpet from the bedroom and had taken it to the garbage dump. Although the police searched for the carpet, they were never able to recover it. The nanny also mentioned a large freezer had disappeared from the house, which happened to be around the same time Hella was last seen. Concern mounted as police considered what all this new information might mean for Hella. The state police then asked Richard to take a lie detector test. During the test, Richard seemed cold and distant. He showed little emotion of any kind. Although Richard managed to pass the test, the police were still convinced that he was responsible for his wife's disappearance. Tired of waiting, when the investigators learned Richard was taking his children to Florida to celebrate the Christmas holidays with relatives, they sprung into action. They put together an 11-page affidavit with the goal of securing a search warrant for the Crafts' residence. The police listed dozens of facts they believed demonstrated probable cause for searching the home. While refraining from speculating about what exactly happened to Hella inside the home, the detectives wrote that, based on their experience and training, that crimes of violence involve a struggle, a break, the use of weapons and other instruments, and or the element of unpredictability, that the person participating in the commission of a violent offense is in contact with physical surroundings in a forceful or otherwise detectable manner that traces may be left in the form of blood, physiological fluids and secretions, hair fibers, fingerprints, palm prints, 
as well as an extensive list of other possibilities. After receiving their search warrant, the investigators settled on an opportune time to search the craft's residence. December 25th, 1986. On Christmas Day, Richard and the family were sure to be still in Florida. When authorities were forming the search team, they reached out to Dr. Henry Lee, a renowned forensic scientist, to see if he would be willing to oversee evidence collection and to help analyze the scene. When Dr. Lee agreed, it was a significant win for the investigators. Even in 1986, before his work on the O.J. Simpson and John JonBenet Ramsey cases, Dr. Lee was heralded as an expert in his field. When a colleague was asked about Dr. Lee's capabilities, they replied, It's not a question of whether he can walk on water. That's an established fact. The question is, how far? When Dr. Lee's team of state police investigators and crime scene technicians arrived at 5 Newfield Lane on the afternoon of Christmas Day, they entered the house through a back window. As they moved from room to room, investigators found the house in complete disarray, with furniture piled everywhere. Mattresses were spread out on the living room floor, and some of the carpets had been removed. Dirty clothes were strewn about, and unwashed dishes were stacked in the kitchen. Underneath the general squalor, the investigators uncovered a wealth of forensic evidence. Dr. Lee spotted five tiny stains on a mattress that could barely be seen with the naked eye, as well as a six-inch blood smear along the side of the mattress. Luminol tests show it was blood, and the species test confirmed the blood was human. Later, investigators established the blood type matched Hella's O positive, and that it was circulation blood and not menstrual blood. This suggests the blood on the mattress resulted from an injured blood vessel. Hella was likely wounded to the point of bleeding while on or near the mattress. The team conducted further luminol tests in various locations throughout the home, many of which tested positive for the presence of blood. When asked about why this testing was important, Dr. Lee replied, Of course, we were looking for any evidence of someone attempting to dispose of a corpse. Recently washed bath towels tested with luminol were found to have traces of blood on them. Later, the blood type was again matched to Hella's. Whoever had murdered Hella had tried to clean up the crime scene, but had missed critical trace evidence. A freezer was also located and searched. It was no surprise Hella was not found inside the freezer. As the au pair Dawn had mentioned, Richard had gotten rid of the old freezer around the same time Hella had disappeared. The freezer they were examining was a replacement freezer purchased by Richard on November 17th. The search also uncovered dozens of weapons that had to be tagged and collected, as any of them could have been the murder weapon used to kill Hella. 
The list of weapons found in the home included several Smith & Wesson 357 revolvers, a few 38 caliber revolvers, Colt Python 38 caliber pistols, Ruger carbine rifles, Finnish semi-automatic weapons, 12-gauge pump shotguns, Winchester rifles, Beretta handguns with clips, a 380 automatic handgun, two hand grenades, a Beretta crossbow, a Walther PPK handgun, two 9mm semi-automatic handguns, a H&K 45 caliber pistol, an over and under style universal shotgun, numerous clips, and an assortment of ammunition. Despite this overwhelming arsenal of weapons and over 100 pieces of other evidence collected from the scene, the investigators were left with one crucial unanswered question. Where was Hella? Without Hella's body or any witnesses, the authorities felt they couldn't risk arresting Richard. They needed enough evidence to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Hella was dead and that Richard had murdered her. Needing more evidence, the investigators decided to go through police reports. They were looking for any unusual events that were reported on or around the time Hella had vanished that could possibly be linked to her disappearance. After they paged through a stack of files, they came across a report from Joe Hine, one of the town's road maintenance workers. During the early morning hours of November 21st, Hine was out plowing the roads when he had a strange encounter. At approximately 3.30 a.m., Hine was plowing River Road and arrived at an intersection on South Flathill Road. As he passed through the intersection, he spotted a U-Haul box van on the side of the road with a large wood chipper attached to its back. When he drove by, he noticed a man in an orange poncho walking from the driver's door towards the rear of the van. The man gestured like a traffic cop, indicating Hine should pass the vehicle and keep going. Hine did just that, continuing to clear the snow from along River Road. When Hine returned to the area from the opposite direction a couple hours later, he noticed the U-Haul and wood chipper were in the exact same position as before. But this time, the back of the box was open and he could see some wood chips inside. He also saw wood chips on the shoulder of the road. Hine continued on, plowing the road, but keeping an eye on the U-Haul in his rearview mirror. When Hine reported the incident to the police, he told them he thought it was strange that a person would be out so early in the morning in the middle of a storm chipping wood. On January 6th, the state police brought Richard in to answer some tough questions. During the interview, Richard repeatedly stated he had no idea where Hella had gone. He openly wept when he described how much his children missed their mother and how they were consumed with worry about where she might have disappeared to. During the same interview, Richard made light of his infidelities. He said, In the airline's business, there are numerous opportunities presented to you. I'm not sexually overactive. I don't think I'm a pervert. 
but if the opportunity presents itself, I would not turn it down. He acknowledged that not only was he having a long-term affair with Nancy Dodd, the Eastern Airlines flight attendant the private investigator had photographed him with, but also he had other casual lovers on the side. While Richard was bragging about his sexual conquests, Hine led detectives to the banks of Lake Zor, to the exact area where he noticed the mysterious man with the wood chipper out in the storm. During a cursory walkthrough of the scene, the police noticed piles of frozen wood chips and other debris. They also discovered a piece of an address label with the craft's home address on it and ripped pieces of an envelope. The detectives froze in horror. Only a few months prior, a local man had made the news after tossing a neighbor's noisy dog into a wood chipper. Had Richard learned about this gruesome story and disposed of Hella's body in a similar fashion? The state police at the scene stated, We all tried to suppress that thought. It was just too much to believe someone could do something so inhuman. A team of forensic investigators led by Dr. Lee spent days sifting through the dirt and debris, moving through the evidence meticulously, layer by layer, resulted in a plethora of findings, Dr. Lee reported. Our team's efforts at Lake Zor eventually led to the discovery of 2,660 strands of blonde hair, 69 slivers of human bone, five droplets of human blood, two teeth, a truncated piece of human skull, three ounces of human tissue, a portion of a human finger, one fingernail, and one portion of a toenail. The forensic team carefully tested all the gathered evidence, confirming time and time again that it was all connected to Hella. The blonde hair found was compared to hairs retreat from Hella's hairbrush. Hella's hair had a distinct ridge characteristic, and the hair found at the lake was determined to be microscopically similar. A chemist matched red nail polish discovered on the fingernail to the nail polish in a bottle sitting on Hella's nightstand. The bone fragments were tested, and they were determined to be human. Pieces of skull bone were identified that exhibited radiating fracture marks, suggesting the individual had received a blow to the head. Further tests revealed the blood type was also the same as Hella's, O positive. Dr. Lee even conducted an experiment, putting a 47-pound pig carcass through a wood chipper. He wanted to see if the fragments formed would match those found at the Lake Zor crime scene. He determined the particle size shape and pattern of the test subject fragments were consistent with the size, shape, and pattern of evidence fragments recovered. There was little doubt the fragmentation of the evidence was caused by a wood chipper. Police divers endured freezing temperatures for four days while they searched the muddy waters surrounding the crime scene. On December 30th, 1986, they recovered a still chainsaw and its serial number had been filed off. The investigators identified remnants of human tissue, blonde hair, and a number of blue fibers in the teeth of the blade. When the blue fibers were tested, they matched Hella's favorite nightshirt, 
and other fibers that had been found among the wood chips. Even though the serial number was filed off of the chainsaw, lab technicians were able to use a chemical solution to restore it. The number revealed was 5921616, and it matched the serial number of a chainsaw Richard had purchased on January 9, 1981, for $644.95. The serial number was on a warranty card Richard had mailed in after the purchase, unequivocally linking him to it. Although all the evidence collected was crucial in building a murder case against Richard, the work of forensic dentist Dr. Gus Karazoulis finally enabled the police to arrest Richard. The first tooth fragment recovered still had a piece of jawbone attached. Dr. Karazoulis determined the tooth was removed from the mouth with traumatic force that sheared it off and took the bone with it. If the tooth had been removed during a typical dental procedure, there would have been no jawbone residue attached to it. Dr. Karazoulis was positive the tooth was broken by a blunt force that fractured it to the center line and took the jaw with it. The second tooth was found by Dr. Karazoulis on the fifth day of his search. Near the end of an eight-hour shift, he slipped and fell into a brook. When he scrambled to his feet, and cleaned off his hand. A tooth fragment that had been stuck to his hand during his fall dislodged. Closer examination revealed it still had a part of a metal crown attached. Dr. Karazoulis took several hundred x-rays of the recovered tooth and crown from all possible angles and compared these images with dental x-rays of Hella's teeth taken between 1980 and 1986. In the end, he was medically absolutely certain the tooth he had recovered at Lake Zor perfectly matched Hella's lower left bicuspid. Hella was no longer a missing person. On January 13, 1987, the police finally had enough evidence to convince the Connecticut State Medical Examiner's Office to pronounce Hella dead and issue a death certificate. Before the ink was dry, Richard was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. The community was shaken to its core by the horrific crime. A Newtown resident told the media, It's like something out of Edgar Allan Poe. One of the craft's neighbors could hardly contain their disbelief that such a violent murder had occurred in their quiet little town. I'm kind of shocked it happened in Newtown. Of all places, they said. Unable to raise the $750,000 bail the judge set, Richard remained in jail from the time of his arrest until the start of his 15-week trial. With the considerable publicity the case received, it was difficult to find jurors who had not already formed an opinion about Richard's guilt. It was no surprise when the trial was eventually moved to New London, and after spending five days working through a list of 46 prospective jurors, a jury of 10 men and two women were selected. The prosecution argued Richard was a cold-hearted murderer with nerves of steel and ice in his veins. Prosecutor Walter Flanagan asked the jury, 
What other kind of person could do something like this to their spouse and the mother of their children? The prosecution believed when Richard learned of Hella's plan to get a divorce, he decided to kill her rather than lose control over her. Prosecutor Flanagan relied heavily on forensic evidence and the expert testimony of Dr. Lee to prove the state's case. The evidence taken from the Crafts' home and recovered from the shores of Lake Zor told a compelling and terrifying story of premeditated murder. From the address label and the chainsaw to the human teeth and the wood chipper bone fragments, Hella's final moments were almost beyond comprehension. According to the prosecution, on November 10, 1986, Richard reserved a dump truck outfitted with a special hitch to tow heavy machinery. A few days later, on the 13th, he ordered a new freezer. Richard insisted on paying cash and never gave the salesperson his real name, referring to himself only as Mr. Cash. Refusing delivery, he picked up the 200-pound freezer all by himself on November 17th. The next day, November 18th, Richard reserved a wood chipper for three days from a rental shop an hour's drive from his home. He chose the largest model available, a 4,220-pound brush bandit capable of shredding logs 12 inches in diameter. That very same evening, an unsuspecting Hella arrived home from Frankfurt. After her friends dropped her off, Hella made her way inside to spend some time with her children before tucking them in at 8 p.m. Dawn, the au pair, was not due back until late, as she had the night off. After changing into her favorite blue nightshirt, Hella went through some of the mail and put one of the letters into her pocket to read later. Shortly after, Richard confronted her about the divorce, and an argument ensued. As they were arguing, Hella was in the middle of changing their bedsheets. With her back turned to Richard, she never would have expected what was about to happen next. Richard charged at her and struck her over the head, which was later assumed to be a large metal flashlight. As she fell to the ground, he hit her again. The second blow was fatal. Richard then wrapped her body in the bedsheets, picked her up, and carried her to the garage where they had a chest freezer. He then placed her body inside. Richard tried to clean up the blood in the bedroom with bath towels, which he later put through the wash, hoping to remove any evidence. Dawn arrived home at 2 a.m. and headed straight to bed, noticing nothing out of the ordinary at the time. The next morning, after the storm had knocked out the power to the house, Richard took the nanny and his children to his sister's house so he had more time to clean up the scene. When his dump truck reservation fell through on November 20th, Richard was forced to rent a much more conspicuous U-Haul to pull the wood chipper. He then drove to Lake Zor and with the chainsaw and the wood chipper, disposed of the remains of Hella Crafts. Referencing the small quantity of forensic evidence that was eventually recovered, 
Prosecutor Flanagan argued Richard had come within two-thirds of an ounce of committing the perfect crime. Richard did himself no favors. Along with many other incriminating statements, when the divers were searching Lake Zor for evidence, Richard told his brother-in-law, Let them dive. There's no body. It's gone. This did not seem like a statement a man who was innocent would make. When Richard took the stand, he was arrogant and indifferent. Although he confessed to cheating on his wife, he suggested his wife was no saint and had lured him into the marriage by getting pregnant. Richard insisted Hella left on her own accord, and he was in no way distressed about what could have happened to his wife and children's mother. He said, She was alright the last time I saw her. However, even his own sister Karen testified for the prosecution, explaining to the jury, Richard showed little concern about Hella's disappearance. When Hella's mother, Elizabeth Nielsen, testified, the majority of the jury could not help but sympathize with her visible heartache. Elizabeth told the jury, Richard had been lying when he told people Hella had gone to visit her in November of 1986. In fact, the last time she had seen Hella was in Denmark on her 80th birthday on July 26th. Elizabeth testified, Hella had stayed for three days and I never saw her again. The last time Elizabeth talked to her daughter was over the phone on November 17th. She also shared with the courtroom a letter Hella had written. In the letter, Hella informed her mother, I told Richard I want a divorce. She also indicated Richard was seemingly unhappy about the idea. Even though there was a growing mountain of evidence suggesting Richard had murdered Hella, the defense did not even concede Hella was dead. Richard's attorney, Daniel Sagarin, argued, A woman who speaks several languages and has extensive travel experiences is certainly in a position to make herself disappear. At least one of the jurors bought into this story. After 17 long days of deliberation, Warren Maskell forced a mistrial when he abruptly walked out of the jury room and refused to continue. Every lunch break during deliberations, Maskell attended a nearby church seeking divine guidance. He was positive Richard was innocent and said he felt Helicrafts might still be alive. Even more, Maskell believed the evidence found at the lake could have been planted and crafts might have been framed. Maskell disregarded the judge's direct order to continue deliberating and staunchly refused to participate. So on July 15, 1988, after 100 witnesses testified and 650 exhibits were presented, in an epic 53-day trial, the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial. Prosecutor Flanagan was so enraged about the mistrial that he openly called Maskell a coward in front of the media. As a result, he had to pay the juror an undisclosed out-of-court settlement, a result of a slander lawsuit. The mistrial was extremely disappointing not only for Hella's loved ones, but also for the prosecutor and the investigative team that had worked tirelessly on the case. Dr. Lee told reporters, We worked for the first three months, day and night, 
and subsequently off and on for almost a year and a half. Significant time and resources had been invested into Hella's case, but it appeared as though their efforts were for nothing. All was not lost, however, as a new trial was quickly arranged. The venue again changed, with the second trial held in Norwalk, Connecticut. On September 7, 1989, Richard was on trial again for the murder of his wife, and it was almost a carbon copy of the first trial. The same witnesses testified. The same damning evidence implicated Richard. As he sat at the defense table, seemingly unmoved by the proceedings. The forensic evidence and Dr. Lee again took center stage. This time, when the case was sent to the jury, it only took them eight hours to reach a unanimous verdict. Guilty. In January of 1990, Richard was sentenced to 50 years in state prison. After the sentencing, Prosecutor Flanagan said, 23 of 24 people were convinced that he was guilty beyond question. That's a pretty good standard of proof, isn't it? In 1993, Richard put the verdict to the test when he appealed his sentence. Richard's lawyers argued, not enough evidence had been presented to convict him of murder. The judge's instructions to the jury had been improper. Comments made by Kraft's wife before a murder should not have been presented to the jury, and that extensive publicity had prevented Kraft from receiving a fair trial. In a 4-1 to ruling, the Supreme Court rejected the appeal. Importantly, they affirmed even though no body or eyewitness to the murder of Hella Crafts had been found. The jury had enough evidence to convict Crafts. Today, Richard remains behind bars, still hoping for one more taste of freedom. His first chance at parole will be in August of 2021. He will be 84 years old. The three young Crafts children eventually went to live with Richard's sister, Karen. Two of Hella's co-workers raised money for the children through a poster campaign they administered that placed requests for donations in stores and airports. The children also received Richard's pension fund. Richard's sister, Karen, acting on behalf of the Crafts children, successfully sued Richard for $1,350,000. Although it is unclear if they ever received a dime from Richard. However, no amount of money could ever make up for the sudden loss of both of their parents. Some good did manage to come out of Hella's heartbreaking death. Her murder investigation and trial forever changed the landscape of forensic science. According to Dr. Lee, the forensic science used in Hella's case broke new ground. He said, The industry has adopted bone grouping by blood type, which was never done before. We did a lot of research on that. Dr. Lee stressed how due to these advances in forensic science, the team was able to secure the first murder conviction in Connecticut's history without a body. Similar cases in Delaware, Texas, and even in Connecticut 
have drawn on the precedents set in Richard's trial. As a result, it is now much more difficult to get away with murder in the United States, perhaps making wannabe criminals think twice before trying to commit the perfect crime. Hella's case also exposed the dangers of domestic abuse. Looking back, there was plenty of warning signs Richard was a dangerous man. There is little doubt Helen needed more help to safely escape her husband than she was given. Recently retired Newtown Chief of Police, Michael Kehoe, who was the patrolman back when Hella disappeared, vividly remembered Hella's case throughout his long career. When reflecting on Hella's murder, Kehoe said, The manner in which Crafts went about to hide his crime was shocking and unnerving to the department and community. Being affluent did not make you immune to issues of domestic abuse. Although too late for Hella, the lessons her tragic death taught the Newtown police and the broader community had a ripple effect, spreading fundamental knowledge about domestic abuse. Hella's tragic story ultimately serves as a wake-up call that domestic abuse can happen to anyone, regardless of a person's wealth or support system, potentially making it a little easier for those experiencing domestic abuse to reach out for help. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. So normally at this part of the show, I introduce you to two podcasts. But for this episode, we want to introduce you to one. A couple weeks ago, we read an article about five-year-old Aska Sharif. In the NPR article dated April 16, 2019, written by Hunter Claus, introduced us to Aska Sharif. Aska has a health condition, and she was referred to the Make-A-Wish Foundation by her medical team. And Aska's wish was that she wanted to make her own podcast. So with the help of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and the folks over at WBEZ Chicago made it happen. And I gotta tell you, when we read this article, it really touched our hearts. So I immediately got into touch with WBZ, and what a great bunch of people. They quickly responded to my message, and after a few emails exchanged, they sent me her promo. Her show's called Aska's Mystery Podcast, and her first episode is called The Stealer of the Diamonds. And I'm sure she'd be thrilled if you gave it a listen. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Aska's Mystery Podcast. My name is Aska, Aska Sharif. I am five years old. I am in kindergarten at Stevenson School in Des Plaines. 
and I am doing a podcast on a story I wrote. The name is The Stealer of the Diamond. Listen to this episode of Azka's Mystery Podcast, written and created by five-year-old Azka. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search the Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run